Thank you very much, John, for your very kind um, introduction. First of all, can you, can you hear me? First and foremost, I'm getting a thumbs up from, from Nat over there. Um, and the temperature, is the temperature okay? It's really important because this room is a bit challenging. We've done quite a few events in, in here. Either it gets too hot or too, too cold. So please say if, if you're not, not comfortable. Really, really important. So thank you again, John and team, for inviting me um, to come and deliver this lecture, which is a, a, great, a great privilege. Thanks also to, Mar uh, to Rachel, Mark and, and the team for organising this, this, this event too. Um, and I suppose looking back, when I was asked to do this, um, my first reaction was, OMG, oh my goodness, um, is anyone going to come along? Um, but pleased to say that you have today, so thank you very much for doing so. Um, and secondly, as John alluded to, it's the last one in the series of inaugurals, so no pressure, Jane. Um, perhaps saving the best till last, but however, I'll let you decide that <laughs> in the next sort of 45 minutes or, or, or so. So the title of, of my talk is Nutrition, UV and Aging and, and Dementia. Um, as some of you know, nutrition is, is my passion um, and hopefully by the end it will hopefully have challenged your, your thinking about nutrition and how it relates to, to health um, and the information that is uh, presented, um, that we are pre presented with. Um, I'll also cover some um, specific areas relating to ageing um, that certainly I've been involved with, people living with dementia and people living with, with beyond cancer. Um, but just sort of going back, in fact, I attended one of the, well, I've attended um, quite a few of the inaugurals, just to maybe sort of pick up some hints and tips from some of my colleagues. But I, atten I attended one of those at, at the end of last year and was sitting next to um, um, a very, uh, a very nice, nice gentleman who was looking through the inaugural programme um, and was talking about my, my biography. Um, I wasn't quite sure how to, how to respond to it, but anyway, I kept quiet. Um, but I overheard him saying, what's nutrition got to do with, with, with dementia? <laughs> um, so hopefully I will at least enlighten um, some of you today if it's not so obvious by the end um, at, at least. So um, let's start at the beginning. So as John um, um, indicated, um, I'm a registered nutritionist and a dietitian, and I will come on to that a bit later in terms of what, what, what that means pro uh, professionally. Um, I'm working in, in, in academia here at BU, um, and I wanted to take this opportunity to share with you some of the aspects of my re research journey, particularly here at, at, at BU. Um, some thoughts and ideas, some of which you may, may not agree with, I don't expect you to, some of which might be sort of controversial. So starting at the beginning, um, what do we mean by nutrition? This is always the one that we you know, present to our, to, to our students right, right, right at, the, at the beginning. What do we actually mean by, by, by this? And as you can see from this, th this slide here, it's about what we eat, okay, what we consume, um, but also what, what we are and how we use that food, how the food that we consume really, you know, is used by, by our body metabolically, but also what we can uh, or able uh, to do. In other words, how we, how we interact with our environments around us. And I'm not just talking about activity, but thinking about some of the psychosocial influences on behaviour and food choice. Indeed, it, it, it's complex, it's not straightforward. Most of you, I hope, have some opinion about nutrition, and hopefully that's what's drawn you here today. Um, you know, in, in terms of you know what you're eating and drinking, but thinking about how it relates to health, maybe sort of right, right or, or, or wrongly. 
Um, most of you are familiar with this, hopefully the students here today are very familiar with this. It's the Eat Well Guide, which is a policy tool used to define our UK uh, government re recommendations on eating healthily and achieving a balanced um, diet. Um, you might agree that it was perhaps not the easiest model to translate, and I struggle to sort of translate this or explain this in less than you know, 50 sentences, um, and I challenge students to do that in any, any, any less. Um, but yet people may, may interpret what they see a balanced diet maybe as, as something like this. Only joking, only joking. Um, it was a birthday card I, I received a, a, quite a few years ago. Um, so, but, you know, what this sort of brings home really is the challenges that we do, do face, that we don't have, have all the answers. Um, and the evidence base is, isn't complete, and of course it's, it, it's a cha changing feast in terms of what to inform people what they're supposed to do, um, but has certainly been my interest and, and driver over, the, uh, over my academic career. And I suppose it was as a sort of student dietitian many years ago, I would say how many, um, when I suppose I became frustrated with not having all of those answers and perhaps annoyed too many people with asking too many d d difficult questions. So perhaps was destined to sort of have, a, have an academic career and perhaps that's why I'm standing he here today. Although really keen to, co to combine you know, work in practice in, in, in some way and keep that um, patient focus, that, that person focus. And I suppose for me the concept of a fusion, which you've heard, heard about already here at BU, you know, does sit very comfortably um, with me. But thinking about, you know, the public, you know, yourselves and what we are exposed to, well, there's a lot of information, a plethora of information out there and advice in the press um, and now on social media, uh, you know, you might say bom bombarded with information. But how true is this information? How do you know that's, that that's true? And who indeed do you, do you trust? Do you believe everything that, that you read? So let me ask you a question. How much do you believe are reading to, that, to headlines? Through my talk, I've sort of threaded through a number of sort of key headlines, some of which you, you, you might have, have seen. Of course, we've heard a lot about carbohydrates and sugar and the, the sugar tax and what, and what have you. And don't worry, I'm not going to go in, into that at all. But this is just one example drawing upon, you know, fats. You know, butter is now good for us, isn't it? You know, ma ma margarine is now, now the bad guy. So we are challenged with these sorts of headlines, but do you believe them? Is this true? How do you know? And where would you go to, to, to find out? And that's really what I want to, to challenge and, and, and discuss. Look at this, a 1940s advertisement. Um, would we see something like this today? Well, sort of pro probably not. You know, this family, they're happy because they eat, eat lard. <laughs> But is this what a typical family would look like in, in, in 2018? What's typical, you might, you might ask? You know, would a typical family, whoever they are, look as healthy as these people? Perhaps given you know, that two-thirds of the you know, UK adult population are overweight um, or obese. I'm not going to focus upon overweight and obesity today because that's not my area of interest. Um, but of course it does hit the headlines from time to time and quite a lot. And indeed is a public health, health concern. It shouldn't be uh, ignored and of course the, you know, the um, health consequences of. However, there may be you know, some situations where we do need to eat more. 
and perhaps the only food that someone may want or enjoy is that piece of cake or you know a piece of lard <laughs> who knows um, in later life and when we're thinking about people living with dementia you know it's a it's a time when we really do need to be you know person-centered per person focused does it matter at, at, at the end of the day but then that can be quite challenging for the family for the care staff around that person but what's really important whoever, whoever they are it's important that people do receive the right messages at the right time to avoid that, that confusion and ensure that their needs are met to maintain health, health and well-being, given that we're faced with all sorts of, of, of messages on a, on a daily basis. So let's sort of think about ageing. Um, and as John said at the beginning, I co-lead the Ageing and Dementia Research Centre here at Bournemouth University. And certainly ageing and dementia is a key part of my, my own research. For those that are not aware, well, the mission statement of the ADRC is to deliver innovative, basic and applied research using a person-centred approach to inform theory, education and professional practice, and thus to improve the lives of old adults and people with dementia and their families. So taking a much more holistic approach to not only thinking about dementia, but thinking what else might be going on um, within that, that, person's, um, that, that person's lives. Um, and there's some information outside about the ADRC if you want, want to know more, and there's the, the link to the, to the centre. Another sort of head, headlines, and I suppose when we sort of think, think about ageing, obviously we want to live, live longer, and yes, we are sort of living longer, but obviously it's about the quality of, of, of those um, um, years as well. And ultimately we want to achieve um, healthy ageing, and then I suppose anything such as this sort of thing, anything that enhances those quality of life years can only be good, and perhaps something that sells new, new newspapers. Um, and what's this? This is saying. I don't know how well you can see that. It's, here it's about saying, you know, how you know beneficial eating a Mediterranean diet is. It's key to even living a long, sort of healthy, healthy life. Maybe so, but you know, how do you know that this is true? Well, what we need to do is to look at perhaps the original publication, look at the academic literature, if you like doing that sort of thing, and really sort of scrutinise the underpinning um, literature to un understand the quality of the research and whether there's anything um, in this sort of statement. The NHS, they have a very good website, NHS Choices, behind the headlines. Some of you might be familiar with, 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 the, with that, um, which really does help people to understand some of, some of this that we, we are faced, faced with. So who is the older person? Who, who are they? Um, well, the Office of National Statistics see this as a person over sort of 65 years and above. But actually, um, what also is concern is that we're going to see a growing number of the older old um, as, uh, as we move, move forward, as we're all living longer, um, obviously due to advances in medicine and thinking about you know, how we can leave, um, lead sort of better lives. So I show you sort of this, this, this headline. I don't know if you remember these two lovely um, gentlemen last month who were on the news and, and in the media. They were the oldest men in Britain who were born on the, on, on the same day. And just sort of thinking about the numbers of um, people who are living who are over 100, there's something like sort of 15,000 people in the UK today, over 100. And that's doubling the, the numbers of people since 2002. Statistics show that something like one in three of today's babies, the babies born, will live to see their 100th birthday. 
So by 2050, there will be over something like 270,000 people over 100. That's staggering statistics, if that's true, assuming that we're all going to be living, living that long as, uh, as well. So thinking about the numbers, again, the numbers of older people, as you can see, sorry, this is the, the most sort of um, statistical slide I will be showing of, of the evening, but what this sort of shows you is, you know, that we're around sort of here now, obviously the, the changes in the number of people o over time, and the numbers of the over 65s is set to increase by, what, something like 64% over the next sort of 20, 20 years, that's the sort of, you know, the blue bar here. But have a look at the, the, the older people, the age sort of 85 plus shown by, by the red bars. Indeed, the number of those people is going to more, more than double from what something like 1.3 million to about 2.8 million by 2035. So our aging population is and will continue to be one of the biggest challenges for the future, not only in the UK, but of course um, worldwide. <laughs> But as a consequence, we're experiencing a number of problems that are affecting older people. Because as we age, it increases our risk of developing chronic diseases, very much influenced by lifestyle, to some extent our genetics as well, such as type 2 diabetes, cancer and mental, mental health problems. And chances are there's going to be one more you know, problem happening at any one time that requires careful management. With the ageing process, we've seen increased prevalence of frailty, something that over the last sort of few years I've become increasingly interested in. And about 14% um, of people will, have, will be frail who are over 60 years. And frailty is where the body essentially loses its, its resilience and people essentially don't bounce back after a physical or, or mental illness and certainly puts them at risk of going to hospital and greater dependency of, of care. So indeed, we have a number of key key concerns with our growing po population but really what i wanted to sort of fo focus on was this sort of the hidden burden in our own society and that that's malnutrition the mal um, means bad um, means sort of bad bad nutrition which can also refer to undernutrition and uh, overnutrition as well as un undernutrition but here what I'm talking about here is, is undernutrition and the prevalence of people you know, losing weight. And it's people who are losing weight unintentionally, um, particularly um, those um, who, who are particularly in, in older people. And there's no universally, universally accepted definition of malnutrition, but essentially means a deficiency of energy, calories and, and nutrients. Yet, you might say, you know, people, some people might be happy that they're losing weight, especially if they've been trying to sort of manage their weight for most of their lives. But losing weight unintentionally carries a massive, massive risk, even if the person is overweight and losing weight without trying. These are some of the headlines, as you can see, just from sort of January sort of this year. I don't know if you, if you remember, the, it did hit the headlines, um, the report from the all-party parliamentary group on, on hunger. But how often do we hear about the, these things? Perhaps, say, in relation to, other, to the other concerns, overweight and, and obesity. I would say, you know, not enough. And we'll go on to explain a little bit more why this is such a huge concern. So malnutrition matters. It's not something that we see in Africa and the developing world, and to some extent that's perhaps somebody's, um, most people's interpretation. It's happening here. It's in our own society. 
There's something like 11.6 million older people in the UK. One in ten, as you can see here from this um, from this figure, figure here, um, a, a, a million people uh, are undernourished or at risk. Most of it is in the community, over sort of not 90 percent. Um, obviously, that impacts upon care, care at home and in sort of community session, uh, settings. And a lot of it is undetected, as, as you can see from the slide. The consequences are not just disease. There are social consequences. Um, people are unable to access food with adverse effects on health and certainly will impact upon their own quality of life. Well, what's the consequence of this? Well, it leads, leads to increased hospital admissions, length of stay, increased risk of dependency, more visits to the, to, to the GP, and of course, already, you know, stretches um, the, you know, health and social care sort of services. What are the costs? Well, the costs are massive. Um, and the figures that we often quote are these figures taken from sort of 2015, 19.6 billion. These are the costs that um, uh, impacts upon health and social, social services. But this is data pre-2015. We're in 2018 now. Um, and recent analysis is showing that this is probably sort of something more like sort of 30 billion today. So what does the future hold if we don't do anything about <coughs> it? So, Sheen. So I just wanted to show you sort of Lynn's story. And I know some of you are familiar with this, 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 um, this video clip. It's very short. Um, but it's a very sort of powerful story that brings home very much the humanised perspective that stories can, um, can offer. And it's been made by the Malnutrition sort of ta Task Force. Thank you. She met Ken, got married and started a family. Lynn loved to cook for everyone and she won prizes for her jam and cakes. But as they got older, Ken got ill and had to move into a care home. She started to struggle at home alone. She lost her enthusiasm for cooking now she had no one to share it with. She forgot things, became confused, and showed the first signs of dementia. She stopped eating proper meals. Cooking and shopping became harder to manage. She ate less and began to lose weight. At first, no one noticed her weight loss because she'd always been on the heavy side. Then Ken died leaving Lynn devastated and lonely. And things got worse. Her family worried and tried to get help, but no one weighed her regularly or told them about things that could make a difference. She eventually lost three stone in ten months and could no longer cope at home alone. Together, her and her family made the difficult decision to move her into a home. Reminded regularly, she began to eat better, enjoy food, and stabilize her weight. Then started to enjoy life again. Thank you, Rasheen. Short, but gets the point quite quickly, isn't it? It's, it's very Im Im impact impactful. Um, so what can we do in response? What solutions do we have to address some of those situations that we've seen? Um, from, from Lynn's story. So on a more positive note, um, 
I've had the um, great privilege of working as clinical lead for the Wessex Academic Health Science Network. I know some of you are working with them and familiar with the work already, but I've been involved around sort of the last sort of three years or so. And the focus there has been on nutrition in, in older people, as you can see there from the title, but with very much a lens on the community. It's not about hospitals, it's about thinking about what's happening within our own, our own communi community, given that's where we see you know, the majority of, of nutrition. And through the programme, I mean, we're just coming to the end of the, of, of the programme and now and starting some new work. But what we've done is to consider how to improve, you know, how to detect it, how to sort of screen for malnutrition and manage it better in older people. And then we've undertaken a number of sort of pilot projects to evidence the benefits and develop, as you can see here, oops, a range of tools. Um, and, and resources, and Bill Gillespie and Kathy are here from the program um, from the program um, today. We've got some leaflets and information outside if, if you're interested. And then some other work that that I've been sort of leading, just to highlight how we work together on projects, um, such as the project here, the InScope project. This is about implementing nutrition screening in community care for older people. We've been working with Southern Health NHS sort of Foundation Trust to undertake some groundbreaking research funded by the Burdett Trust for Nursing there around the screening and treatment of, of malnutrition following the implementation of a new uh, procedure um, to um, deliver um, nutritional care across some pilot sites in, in the trust. And we've used a sociological mod model, some of you might be familiar with the normalisation sort of process theory, to understand some of the barriers and solutions to Im implementation and, and um, informing new recommendations for rollout as, as a toolkit to train staff to sort of screen and manage people better and ultimately have more people better nourished across, across our communities. So watch that space. Hopefully we'll have some more of the results coming out soon. So what I wanted to turn our attention to now was thinking about um, dementia. And this is um, the headline from our sort of local da Daily Echo showing that indeed sort of Christchurch is the dementia capital of, 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 of the UK. Um, and people living dementia, well, about half of them will be sort of poorly nourished and perhaps lo losing weight, not forgetting that some people with living with dementia might maybe gaining weight. Um, and the majority will be dehydrated um, as well. There's something like 850,000 people in the UK living with dementia. Most of those people will be over the age of 65 years, although dementia can happen in younger people as well. Many are living in nursing and residential care. And of course, with an ageing population, the prevalence of dementia is, is going to grow. As I'm sure a lot of you are aware, there's no cure for dementia, despite lots, millions and millions of pounds that has gone into sort of developing new drugs. So the challenge is, what can people do now to maintain a good quality of life for as, for as long, as, uh, long as possible and take control over things? You know, what in impact does lifestyle change have upon health and well-being, and particularly in relation to nutrition, which is really how I became um, involved in, in dementia. So looking at the headlines, um, again, these are just sort of a few examples of some of the sort of key headlines that we've seen. Um, and this one here actually just hit the headlines um, last, last week, in fact, um, thinking about how some foods might help people, people with, with, with dementia. But 
when it comes to Mediterranean diet, again, I guess that's something that you know we do do hear a lot lot about. Uh, perhaps okay for dementia uh, for prevention of dementia, and there's some work um, being undertaken in America. But what can we do? What can people do when somebody has a diagnosis of, of dementia? And that's where things do indeed become much more complex. So a few years ago, I was asked to deliver some nutrition training for um, a care home not very far away from here, um, which set us with a bit of a challenge because there's no recognised training programmes out there and certainly the evidence base at the time um, wasn't great, um, was quite patchy. Um, so indeed, we, we need to do something about it. Um, so what we did, we um, gained some funding for the Burdett Trust, Trust for Nursing to think about how we could tackle some of the, those nutrition-related problems in dementia and how we could in, indeed improve eating and drinking um, for, for, for those people. So apart from the risk of weight loss, malnutrition, I've mentioned about already, um, dehydration, what else can happen? Well, as a result um, of dementia, people can become um, confused, can lose their memory, and obviously that can very much um, an impact upon um, food-related um, tasks or whether people um, remembering whether they've eaten or not. Difficulties with chewing and, and swallowing is, is certainly a co common problem, loss of appetite, but it's that inability to eat and drink in independently that we often do, do see. But also the inability um, to um, recognise hunger, thirst and smell, which is what I just want to, to draw upon. So by now, it's going to that time of day, um, and what, how far into the talk, quite far through now, you're probably thinking what, what you're going to have for your tea, and that's fine, I'd be doing, doing the same. But I wanted to sort of present these images to you, and just to ask you, do any of these sort of make you feel hungry? Any ones in particular, um, perhaps? Okay, which is your favourite? <laughs> but let me ask you, what would happen if you couldn't see or smell or experience the, the, the food? Your interaction would indeed be, be very, be very, very different. Do you still feel hungry now? Do you feel like eating these? These are actually images of food that have been pureed for, for people who have swallowing difficulties in dementia and stroke and, and other conditions. And were gen these plates of food, if you can call them food, were presented to people mm -hmm. to, to eat. I mean, what's, what's your response? Well, that's not great, is it? But what might be the response of a, of a person sat in front of you, the, the patient, the person, or even the care staff? How, you know, how do they feel in response to, 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 these, um, to these plates of food? But there are solutions. These are actually pureed foods. Some of you might have sort of seen some of, some, some of these um, before. Um, so with a bit of sort of careful uh, thought and creativity, it is possible to make you know, pureed food um, look really, really good. Um, so the consequence to that, indeed improving consumption um, to what, something like up to 75% of the meal. The other important aspect, of course, is embracing that socialisation of food again, that social eating with, with others and not eating alone. And of course, promotes dignity, which is certainly very much at the heart of the work that, 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 we, that, that we've undertaken is a key aspect of, of all of this. So, moving on to the 
mystery pots that you were given as you sort of came came in. Hopefully, I hope no one's sort of eaten what, what's inside <laughs> inside them. It's not it's, it's not the um, most high tech activity you've probably undertaken. But what I would like you to do is just to close your eyes and open up the pot and just to smell what's in there. As I say, please don't eat it or drink it. Click, click, click. <laughs> And just to think about, what does, does that smell remind you of anything? Does it remind you of a happy time, a sad time? I mean, some of you might have a cold, might have hay fever, and may indeed be struggling to actually, actually smell it. Does it remind you of a particular food? Does it remind you of Christmas? Does it remind you of perhaps going to the seaside? Yeah? Has everyone had a, a little sniff? Okay. So, so that might remind you of a particular food, perhaps of an, uh, an occasion, because, you know, it's food that truly brings us together, isn't it? You know, those parties, those sort of ha happy, happy times, maybe holidays, remind you of sort of somebody, or particular food um, as well. Um, and when we're sort of thinking about, you know, when we, you know, present, you know, food to people, it's not just about the visual presentation of food. Clearly, you know, we do it with the right to some extent, but also thinking about the, the smell of the food, but also thinking about the flavour of, of the food as well. And that's something that as we do get older, we do lose the ability to sort of, you know, we lose our senses to sort of, you know, taste food and, and smell food sadly. And in people who live with dementia, that happens much, much more, more quicker. So we need to think about how we can put the flavour um, back into food, much more perhaps than, than we would um, choo choose, choose to eat. So out of a sort of funded piece of research, as I've alluded to already, working with my colleague sort of Joanne Holmes here, here today, um, we developed this sort of model, and I know some of you perhaps have sort of seen this before, but this is our sort of model of sort of person-centred nutritional care, really at the heart of um, what we believe can work. So what works, which is really the, the purpose of, the, of this, this research. And out of this, we wanted, we've um, identified these sort of six dive dimensions. I mean, I don't have time to go all of the, through all of these. But essentially, it's thinking about the availability of food, when food is available to people living with dementia, you know, chances are some people in dementia are able to sit down for three meals a day. So how do we sort of capture and ensure that people get what they need if they're constantly wandering over a 24-hour period? Thinking about some of the tools and resources that, that are out there, and we've in indeed developed some of our own. Relationships to others when eating and drinking, that whole experience, that socialisation ar around food, and whether that's within the dining area or whether that person wish wishes to, to eat within their own rooms, absolutely fine. Participation in activities, you know, thinking about how we can use food-related activities and other activities to engage that person within the eating experience. And of course, other factors in terms of, you know, consistency of care and provision of, of appropriate um, in, in, in information. But then out of this, really the challenge was then, how do we translate all this knowledge, which is all very well published in, you know, the academic literature, and only academics tend to read those sorts of things, 
Um, how do we translate that knowledge um, for people to engage um, and ensure that they're doing the right thing to truly inform practice? So there's lots of things that we could, could have done, but by, by speaking to people who are going to be users of the, this information, we developed this workbook, and I know some of you have seen this already, and we've got some copies to show you out outside. It's now available as a PDF sort of version. Um, and, and is that downloadable from, from the website. We also developed a sort of training film which is linked with, with the workbook and we're also developing a new guide for sort of carriers which will be launched very, very soon. And since this time we've been uh, measuring the impact of, of, of this training and pleased to see that we've had some amazing um, responses from care, care staff you know, across the community and countrywide as well, I'm, I'm pleased to say, and it's truly sort of benefiting people living with dementia. You know, some people who are losing weight are eating again and starting mm -hmm. to gain weight. We've got some lovely examples and stories, some really sort of good, good, good news stories. So for me, this offers, you know, a perfect example of how the evidence base is informing practice and is improving the delivery of nutritional care for people living with dementia. But as I said, there's a lot of information out there at the beginning on the internet and the social media, which indeed can, can be confusing. So where should people, patients, carers, seek this information? Obviously, it's great if people know about this information around dementia um, if they happen to sort of come across our, 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 our website. Where should people go? Um, should they go and see their see their GP, for instance? And this sort of cartoon shows Jolly Giraffe. Um, and he's sort of saying, the doc says I should have more fruit in my diet. Are you going to, are you going to do, as he says? You bet. Now I have three cherries in my martini, trying to meet us at least sort of five, five a day. Um, but, you know, is it, you know, your general practitioner, your doctor, are they the experts on, on, on nutrition? Or is it sort of some, somebody else? And how do you respond to that sort of information, whatever information you, you, you do receive? And this was a headline again that sort of um, well it, what from from last last month now in um, r recognizing how much training you know medical students our doctors have actually uh, received you know our general practitioners our doctors the ex experts and we know that they receive a very small proportion of their training in the medical curriculum um, from from nutrition so your general practitioner the greater respect is not necessarily going to be an expert unless they've undergone sort of further further training or has a, a special interest and clearly a lot more work needs needs to be done done there but watch this space so finally in sort of thinking about sort of practice it's really important that the public yourselves us have access to appropriate information have access to the professionals the true experts who are capable, competent at providing evidence-based scientific advice to guide food choices and nutritional developments, especially when the impact of diet-related ill health is, is so great to the individual, the community, and of course the econ economy, it's massive. So who are the nutritional professionals out there who've had the evidence-based sort of training to, to translate that research evidence in, in, into practice? And here they are. These are the nutritional professionals in, in the UK. I know some of you are indeed sort of nutritionists. Um, I'm a registered nutritionist and, and, and a dietitian. So who can be trusted? So we've got um, different sort of groups of people. We've got the um, UK voluntary registered, uh, uh, registered nutritionists. They're the people who provide scientific evidence-based information and guidance about food and nutrition. 
regulated by the Association mm. for, for Nutrition. We've got dietitians who are HPC sort of registered. They use the science of nutrition to devise eating plans for, for patients. Um, but the, the term, the, the, the title dietitian is indeed protected um, by, by law and we recognise that there's certainly indeed crossover between sort of dietitians and nutritionists. And of course other, other sort of healthcare professionals, doctors, nurses, registered with their own um, statutory bodies who've perhaps un undergone to undertake some sort of further, f further training. But the problem we face is that the nutritionist is not a protected title. Anyone can call themselves a nutritionist. You can go away and do a weekend course on nutrition and call yourselves, uh, call yourselves a nutritionist. Um, you know, and not necessarily that person may not have undergone that high quality training that's needed to ensure that the public receive that evidence informed um, ad ad advice. It's not obvious. And it's confusing, it's certainly not, not, not a criticism, but hopefully with Department of Health reforms and professionalism following consultation in January this year, hopefully those developments will pave the way for more clarity on the true experts on nutrition and other sort of professionals and truly provide the voice of, of, of science. Because indeed it's quite messy at the moment, but we do need to ensure that we have certainly a joined up workforce and people know who, who to trust. So finally, I just wanted to sort of highlight another condition where I've um, certainly undertaken um, a considerable amount of work and certainly where there's been a lot of claims ma made about diet and nutrition, and that's in, in, in cancer. With claims such as shown on this sort of slide, claims that diets can prevent or even cure, cure cancer. Um, and really it's a time when people, have, when people have had a sort of cancer diagnosis, perhaps they're at that most vulnerable, particularly after treatment. And we know there is that teachable moment when people are most receptive to receiving information and to find something that they can do to take control over their lives. And certainly eating and drinking is something that people perhaps do, do, do turn to. But it's complex. I'm sorry. I'm sorry about this rather sort of complex slide. But there's. But the message really here is to sort of stress that nutrition plays an integral part across the whole sort of cancer journey. Prior to the um, um, the diagnosis of the cancer, thinking the life experiences of that people, that person, but also thinking what's happened subsequently, the impact that nutrition has upon the, the treatment and following um, um, treatment. You know, we know that nutrition is an important determinant of a person's susceptibility, its progression and the response to treatment and ultimately that person's quality of life. Therefore, patients should be provided with appropriate guidance for nutrition throughout the life course of their cancer journey, um, surely, but how do we achieve that? And that's the challenge that, 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 that we have. We know quite a lot about cancer prevention. We have a you know, good body of evidence. About a third of cancers may be preventable by appropriate food and nutrition, regular physical activity and avoidance of obesity. And these are just some of the um, documents which are freely available from the World Cancer Research Fund web websites, website. And what the WCRF do is to look at the body of research, they synthesise the evidence, they grade it, and then draw upon um, and the, the evidence to provide some goals and rec recommendations for the po populations across a range of, of, of different com common cancers. But let me ask you, what about guidance for patients when they've actually found out they've, they've had a cancer? What do people do, do then, knowing that people are at certainly high risk of a secondary re reoccurrence and also developing other chronic conditions as well?
What about people living beyond, living with and beyond cancer af after treatment? And are the healthcare professionals appropriately, appropriately trained um, as well? And I suppose my interest in the area really sort of came about quite a few years ago now, soon after I joined Bournemouth, and it was the lead breast cancer nurse at Bournemouth who asked me, essentially, what should she, what should she do and her team offer when it comes to providing nutritional um, uh, advice? You know, what information and advice should, should, they, should they provide? And in response at, at the time, well, we were fortunate to get some funding from, the, from Macmillan Ca Cancer Support, a very sort of trusted organisation to really sort of think about how we can put together the available evidence. And this is the Learn Zone package that is still um, live and freely available um, on the Macmillan Cancer Support Learn Zone website. And obviously, we published the, the, um, the, the research out of that. And then more recently, um, I've been invited to work with the NIHR, the National Institute for Health Research, Cancer and Nutrition Infrastructure Collaboration, to think about how we can truly improve nutritional care and advice for cancer and care to achieve better outcomes. The ultimate goal here is to provide better evidence and to inform better advice and care to achieve certainly better outcomes for the patients, improve their quality of life and prevent cancer reoccurrence and the risk of other chronic conditions. And as you can see, there's a range of activities and I'm sort of leading the professionals work stream, very much involving a PPI, um, patients and public involvement um, as well, and thinking about how we can provide evidence-based guidance to, to, to patients. But indeed, there's a lot of work to, to be done and we don't have all the answers, um, but certainly we do have some, some information that we can signpost people uh, appropriately. So where does that leave us? Well, clearly, uh, a lot more research and understanding is needed to address some of the nutrition-related problems that I've alluded to. We need to provide much more evidence-based solutions, particularly in older people, which is certainly my focus, if we are really going to mitigate the challenges ahead. Um, we need to build capacity and capability with an appropriately trained workforce that needs to work together, that needs to be uh, joined up, and they should be the voice of science. And in many cases, it's about providing sort of common sense as well, and ensuring that people do receive accurate nutrition messages to advise, to frame the messages, and appropriately hi highlight the facts and debunk the myths um, as well. For me, I'd just like to sort of end on this quote from, from Henry Ford, coming together is a beginning. Keeping together is progress. Working together is, is success. And I present this because a lot of my work just wouldn't have been possible without working together with lots of great people, Joanne Holmes, Michelle Hewitt, Michelle Board, and other great academic colleagues at BU, as well as some of the great students that I've, I've worked with um, along the way and hopefully I will continue sort of working with. And I hope this research has, has truly in inspired them. And of course, people in other places that we've worked in partnership, Cathy and Annie at the Wessex HSN, practitioners, care homes, and of course, the people and the patients themselves. None of this would have been, been possible. So thank you to you all, and hope we can continue, continue further. So I hope this has given you something to think about. Dare I say, food for thought. I know all the, all the jokes. And perhaps you've learned sort of something new, I, I hope. So thank you for listening. And I think we might have a few moments, a few minutes for, for questions. Yeah. Thank you.